This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey there, Michael. Hi, how are you? I'm doing fine. How are you today? I'm uh, doing as best as uh, I think we can expect under the circumstances. Yeah, I want to get into into that. But before we do, we should just remind people uh, who you are, since we're doing this on the phone and uh, for the sake of time, uh, it's not a, a full-blown podcast recording. So you are in charge of the Secure Community Network. Can you just remind people... Um, of what you spend your days thinking about and working on. And I can remind them now, we, we talked last September about the rise in mass shootings, uh, hate crime reporting, the need to confront rising anti-Semitism. And it's been about a year since then. Uh, so can you give some, folks a sense of your background and uh, how we came to be having this conversation? Certainly. Uh, so the Secure Community Network, or SCN, is a nonprofit organization. Uh, we serve as the official safety and security organization for the Jewish community across North America. So in, in that role, we serve as a liaison to federal law enforcement, specifically the FBI and Department of Homeland Security, but other agencies and departments as well. Uh, we have a robust uh, command center intelligence and information sharing effort where we are monitoring over 12,500 Jewish facilities. Uh, we have a capability to be reviewing surface, even dark web material, and tracking individuals who are uh, potentially violent or dangerous or threatening the Jewish community. Um, while at the same time, we also work very closely with our network of Jewish security professionals. There are about 75 full-time former law enforcement uh, individuals who serve as security directors for Jewish communities across the United States. Uh, we provide them tools to do assessments and training, and also, uh, unfortunately, as we've gotten too good at, respond to incidents. So the last, uh, you know, over a week now, we have been incredibly busy with the current threat environment and working to ensure mm -hmm. the safety and security of our community. Yeah. Uh, and I want to thank you for taking some time to to talk with us, um, given that you have very sadly been so busy. Um, before we get into the security situation and how law enforcement in the U.S. is responding, maybe you can just share some of your initial reactions to the attack and uh, and everything that has happened since then through the lens of the work you're doing. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
our team of intelligence analysts and our Jewish Security Operations Command Center, JSOC, works 24-7 uh, very early in the morning, uh, the morning of October 7th. Um, they began, obviously, seeing reports about what was going on in Israel. Um, we know from from vast experience that whenever there is an uptick or conflict in in the region and specifically involving Israel, that we are likely to see uh, an increase in anti-Semitic content and and rhetoric. And so they began preparing for that. Of course, I don't think anything could have prepared us for what transpired uh, over the next 12 to 24 hours as, as information mm-hmm. became available, as we saw the absolute brutality uh, and, and savagery of the Hamas terrorist attack against um, innocent civilians in, in Israel. Uh, and as, as that went on, of course, we were, we were both incredibly concerned about colleagues and, and uh, family and friends that were in Israel mm-hmm. Uh, while at the same time dealing with what we knew was likely to be an increased uh, and very challenging threat environment domestically here in the United States and around the world for the Jewish community. Can you share a bit of what uh, has been expressed to you by the people and the organizations you work with in the Jewish community? How have how have they been responding and how have you been fielding those inquiries and and how how does this play out between you and your uh, the community that you serve? I think it's a great question. I you know one of the things that we work to do is provide verified, uh, relevant security information for for the community. You know, as, as President uh, Herzog said, and, and President Biden has reiterated, uh, October seventh was the deadliest day for the Jewish community globally since the Holocaust. Uh, and so a lot of shock, um, obviously, the, the closeness of the community and the impacts. There's very few people that have come across that doesn't know someone or one or two steps removed. So dealing with, with that uh, and the anxiety that comes from that and then the nature of social media, the virulent spread of rumor and innuendo, whether that's threats mm-hmm. to the community or other issues and, and working to parse those out so that we can get uh, security information to the community so that they can feel uh, secure, that they can feel safe, that they can, that we can help make a determination as to whether an organization should stay open or closed, not based on rumor, but based on actual verifiable information. And that that's challenging in, in the environment that we're in uh, because of how fast things move over social media and how yeah. quickly things can move from rumor to almost accepted fact. I want to get into the information problem in a minute, but I saw President Biden was asked during an interview whether this attack in Israel by Hamas increases the likelihood, obviously, of, of terrorist acts in the United States. And he said, absolutely, yes. And so I wonder if you can talk about how law enforcement in the U.S. has responded, maybe in ways that haven't been well publicized, but that people ought to know. So one of the things that we have worked diligently as a community over the last uh, several years, and certainly the network of uh, security professionals that are part of the Secure Community Network, 
um, and our federation system and partner organizations has been building those relationships up with law enforcement. So many people uh, walked out of synagogue on uh, Saturday morning, the 7th, and there were squad cars there. Uh, or there was a police response over the next 24 hours, checking in on the community, increased patrols around community centers. And that that has been the result of a lot of coordination and communication work by law enforcement to understand the needs of the community. I, I really want to express what I think has been a phenomenal response from state, local, and federal law enforcement mm-hmm. in terms of information sharing, in terms of evaluating the threat environment, pushing information to us that we can share with the community, coordinating with us, and also pushing information to law enforcement. We have done done the same. Um, and we, we know that law enforcement is continuing to maintain a heightened operational tempo, uh, awareness around Jewish institutions, also monitoring uh, large-scale demonstrations or protest events, activities mm-hmm. that might disrupt operations uh, in Jewish facilities or that may uh, you know, impinge the ability of Jewish community members to move around freely. Um, all that is going on. And it is uh, it is helping to make things a bit easier in a very very difficult time. Can you talk about what the real credible threats have looked like? And I have a dear friend who has been alarmed as I have been at the the large scale demonstrations, uh, and it, it almost immediately cheering for the terrorists in Israel, and it has felt at times that we're sort of in an upside down world. And it's hard to imagine uh, that events like that don't come with increased security risk for Jewish people all over the country. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that and the specific threats that you feel that, and then, then we should talk about the problem of information pollution and how to tell what's real and what's not, especially in the hyper uh, uh, social media driven environment? So I think, you know, first of all, we have maintained uh, and we we continue to assess that there are no, at this time, direct credible threats to the community. Now, that, of course, is limited to what we know at any given time. And that that doesn't mean that there aren't uh, other uh, non-direct threats to the community or, or those that we're unaware of, which is why it's so important that we have robust information sharing was so critical that we break down silos and work together as a community and with law enforcement. Um, We have seen over the last week a dramatic increase in risk events that we are monitoring. Um, We have seen a dramatic uptick in incidents that have been reported to us by community members uh, across 31 states and uh, as well as from Canada. And we work to assess those, determine whether they need to be referred to law enforcement, and then follow up with law enforcement. The calls for violence that we have seen have ranged from calling for uh, targeted violence against uh, Jewish community institutions to specific members of the community. And we worked uh, robustly with law enforcement to address each of those as they come in. But I I, I do want to stress Overall, we have come to the assessment that none of that should preclude members of the community from participating in Jewish life. 
And we mm. have continued to stress that organizations should remain open, absent specific direction from law enforcement or public safety to the contrary. Okay, so how does the increase in information pollution, uh, you've used uh, the terms misinformation, disinformation, I think in your press materials, how does that make it harder for law enforcement and the partners and, uh, and committees to assess real risk? It is trying to often uh, find a, a needle in a haystack of needles. Um, mm. the, the amount of information, if you think back, or, or if your listeners uh, who were old enough to think back to the post 9-11 environment and the mm-hmm. rumor and innuendo that took root, whether from anthrax attacks or potential bombings, et cetera, and how uh, how many resources were required to track those down across the country from joint terrorism task forces and law enforcement to the media and now add in social media and the fact that you have billions and billions of posts that are occurring on social media, any one of which can go viral at any particular time. And you're trying to weed out the people, the, the rumor and innuendo that may be disseminated uh, with with good intention by members of our own community to inform other people mm-hmm. to the intentional acts of bad actors who are looking to use misinformation and disinformation to scare the community or incite violence. Uh, and it becomes an incredibly challenging prospect. Yeah. That's why we've developed such a, you know, a very robust um, stack of technology to help us weed through that and identify those individuals who present the greatest threat to the community and what they're saying and doing and work with law enforcement to deal with them. How has all of this changed since the Tree of Life attack in 2018? I know we talked about this about a year ago, but it'd be, uh, it'd be worth reprising that, I think, how the ability of the Jewish community to respond to threats has, uh, has really changed since then. I think that we have gotten much more coordinated as, as a community and as a system. Uh, we have looked at best practice and we have really worked to disseminate uh, coordinated best practice efforts. So whether it's from information sharing and having the capability that we now have today that did not exist in 2018, we have built out training that uh, is shared by Jewish security professionals around the country. So if you think about fire training, fire drills, uh, how we've done, all of us do those the same, regardless of where we live in the United States. In a pre-2018 world, we as a Jewish community were doing training uh, many different ways on the same subjects. We really tried to, as a professional network, coordinate the training. So whether you were in uh, you know, Chicago or Charleston or Chattanooga, uh, the training is the same so that we are all uh, working off the same playbook and able to respond to incidents in a much more coordinated fashion. And I think we've seen um, in some otherwise very potentially uh, tragic events how the impact of that can play out. I mean, you think about Collisville, Texas, and the hostage event there. Um, the hostages there had all been through training, and that was national best practice training. And of course, they they all survived. And as Jeff Cohen, one of the hostages, points out, they weren't rescued; they escaped. Mm-hmm. And I think that that really highlights. Um, the understanding in the community 
that we are not going to choose the time and place of the next incident, but we can choose our preparedness. And in choosing okay, so, our preparedness. Yeah. No, I was just going to say in, in preparedness, we should talk about what people can be doing right now, what, what communities can be doing right now. I want to get into you know, the individual level in a minute, but is there something, some form of generic general advice that you would give to every, everyone listening now, uh, communities who are in a position to you know, test, test their security that's in place? What are you telling people to do right now that isn't in response to a specific threat? So we're, tell, we're telling people six key action items. Um, one, rely on verified sources for security information. Um, we know there's that extensive misinformation and disinformation online. Don't make security decisions based on what you read on Instagram or TikTok. Mm-hmm. Two, all institutions should maintain strict access control and visitor management systems. Um, you know, you need to know who's in your facility. If you're letting somebody in the facility, they should have a reason for being there, not just because they want to be there. And you should know when, how long they're there for, what they're there for, and when they leave. Three, we are encouraging organizations to work with their service providers to test their alarms, cameras, panic buttons, fire systems. You do not want to find out in an incident or an emergency that something is non-functioning or that you should have changed the batteries. Hmm. Four, suspicious activity should be reported to law enforcement. Local Jewish security professionals and or SCM's duty desk. We've all had that little gnawing feeling in the stomach. You know, where you think to yourself, should I say something? Should I? The default is yes. If you see something, say something. Five, we're encouraging people to avoid uh, protests or counter protests and not to engage with hostile agitators. There is no good reason to stick yourself into a compromising position, uh, particularly with a large group of people. And then lastly, we're encouraging people to remain vigilant and aware of both their physical and virtual surroundings. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about what individuals um, should be doing now. The former leader of Hamas, as I'm sure you saw, called for a day of jihad last week. Um, and we saw some day schools canceling classes out of an abundance of caution. How should people be responding when there's so much uncertainty? So that is a great example of where we say rely on verified information. So for those of us in in the security space, we heard that call to action and understanding past pronouncements from organizations dating all the way back to Al-Qaeda, but certainly the so-called Islamic State, even groups like the Goyam Defense League. We very rarely, first of all, see those calls for action materialize into substantive activity. That's one. Secondly, the messaging that was put out uh, by Michelle Khalid, if you, for, for those in the security space, very much understood it to be a call to action in a specific set of countries, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, Yemen, et cetera, not as a broader call. So, you know, interestingly and counterproductively, the fact that this took root in the United States and that people saw and certainly our adversaries are aware that if the Jewish community self-selects to close down, if we self-select to say that we are not going to Jewish day school, we are not sending our kids, we are not going to synagogue or shul because of an unverified threat, um, they see that. 
And of course, if we help them meet their objectives to shut down Jewish life in this country, uh, I, I don't think that's in our self-interest as a community. So that that's really a great example of where misinformation or disinformation can take root and why we say rely on verified sources of information. What I would say to the community is absent being told otherwise. You know, be vigilant, be aware, but live your Jewish life. Live, yeah. you know, now is not the time to not go to synagogue. Now is not the time not to send our kids to Jewish day school. Mm-hmm. Now is the time to make sure that we have good security, good safety, that we feel confident, and that we are showing the world that we will not be beaten down into submission. That notwithstanding <laughs> the tragedy that, that occurred, you know, we saw people unarmed, yeah. driving in their cars, driving to the south, driving to go rescue, to protect, to shield. Certainly, if that courage can be mustered, these grieving families, people we don't know where they are still, surely we, we owe it, absent information the contrary, to keep Jewish life alive here so that we can support those in Israel and those who are still dealing with this incredible tragedy. Well said, and I think I know how you'll respond to this question, but I want to put it to you anyway. Before that day of jihad last week, I know someone who told me uh, he was wrestling with whether to take down his mezuzah from his door um, last Friday, and he ultimately decided to leave it up. He couldn't bring himself to take it down. But would you counsel the same to Jews throughout the United States who are questioning whether to hide signs and symbols of their faith and heritage uh, as a as a protective measure? I don't think it is a protective measure. I think it's a submission. And I refuse to submit. I, I refuse to hide who I am uh, because other people have actively tried to take us down. Uh, I think we 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 have suffered greatly and gravely as a people for 3,500 years. These cowards, this savagery, which was horrific, is um, another chapter in that. But let's make it be a chapter, not the final one, though. So I, yeah. I, I would say that we need to do the work to keep the mezuzahs up, to to wear our kippot, to show who we are, to stand and support those who are suffering and, and grieving. Um, I absolutely believe that with, with all my heart. And if we don't do that, what are we saying to our children, our grandchildren? Well said. Michael, there are a lot of people listening now who aren't Jewish and who want to know what they can do to help because we have a collective responsibility to make sure the world is safer. And I wonder what you would say are some constructive things people can actually do um, instead of, you know, scrolling through harrowing images on social media. What's available to them as, as, as points of action? Now, I have been touched by the number of colleagues from across the faith-based community that I have heard from over the last week. Colleagues, Muslim, Christian, Sikh, um, from around the country. I, and I, I've heard from many people 
in our community that they've they've had at times felt very alone. I think simply reaching out and saying, I'm thinking of you. Mm. We know this is difficult. You're not alone. We are here is incredibly meaningful. Beyond that, I, I think that that allyship, uh, you know, we, we saw after the attack in Pittsburgh, literally the Jewish community was physically encircled institutions by members of the Muslim community. Mm. After the Christchurch attack that impacted the Muslim community in New Zealand, our security directors offered training to the Muslim community to help empower them, give, you know, resiliency. I think standing together um, during this time, recognizing that, that, that we will not accept terrorism, um, that we won't accept what we saw as normal or as a new normal. Um, and then beyond that, I, I think obviously there's incredible needs in, in Israel. Um, families that are going through and will continue to go through incredible trauma. And there's phenomenal partners that we have that are doing trauma work, uh, that are, that are doing support work and medical work from United Hatsala to, to Natal and others that could use help and assistance. We'll put some of those references in the, in the notes for this episode as well. We can get them from you and point people there. There's one other question that I wanted to bring up. And I don't know if this is even, you know, something that is under your your umbrella, but uh, just days before the Hamas attack uh, in Israel, the genetic testing company, I'm sure you've heard of it, 23andMe, confirmed that they'd been hacked and that attackers were able to get login credentials of other users from other hacks and log into 23andMe and use a feature called DNA relatives. And the hackers posted an initial data sample on the internet in early October, and they claimed that this file contained the personal information of a million Ashkenazi Jews. And then they began selling what they claim are 23andMe profiles for between a dollar and $10 per account, which includes things like the name or display name, sex, birth year, and some details about their genetic ancestry results. And the friend who brought this to my attention has Ashkenazi heritage and is about to become a new dad, and he's scared. And I'm wondering if there's anything people can do to protect themselves from this kind of vulnerability. Are you aware of this news, and how are you thinking about it? Uh, We are aware of it. And we had been working uh, with some of the experts on on our team and affiliated with with our organization who are cybersecurity uh, professionals. Unfortunately, and this is not an inspiring answer, I I think we live at a time where, where one has to assume that almost anything that is online or that is being run through a commercial platform uh, has the ability of being susceptible to hackers. Um, and that that is just simply a reality. So, you know, unfortunately, we, we can't uh, probably take ourselves totally off offline or off the grid, but people have to be very thoughtful about what they're willing to put or what services they're willing to engage with. Um, there are a number of services out there that do... Uh, surface deep and dark web monitoring that do uh, scanning for credit reports and financial information 
we recommend that people take advantage of those. Um, you know, these are often the sites that, that a company will tell you they'll now pay for if you've been the victim of a breach. Don't wait for mm -hmm. the breach. Mm -hmm. uh, if, you, if you're able to uh, engage one of those services ahead of time, uh, because we likely know that in today's day and age, the average person has dozens of online profiles. I'd encourage any of your listeners, just think. Think of the number of podcasts you subscribe to. Think of the yeah. number of entertainment sites, games, banking sites, credit cards. Um, I mean, just scroll through your phone, and then every one of those is a, is a point of entry. And we have some very sophisticated actors, some of whom are for financial gain, some of whom are uh, looking at, you know, for criminal act or engaging criminal activity, others of whom are cyber terrorists and they want to instill fear or take critical services offline. And, and that, unfortunately, is a reality. So people need to be proactive. Okay. I want to be um, mindful of your time. Just thank you for helping a little bit more utility uh, into, the, into the dialogue. All right, Ron, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.